0: And welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, AKA the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information, and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. So today it's me, and I'm going to be talking about something a bit different. Finding love after an eating disorder. And the impetus for creating this episode has come from one of you lovely listeners. So, someone reached out to me and said that they were really struggling with feeling comfortable, worthy of romantic attention, or being able to be intimate in recovery from an eating disorder because of whilst having the eating disorder, actively losing weight, it had been a time where they felt perhaps better about the body image, more worthy of attention from others romantically. And going through the weight restoration process, adjusting to changes in their body, that had brought up lots of difficult stuff. And I want to just make the point that this listener who has reached out, this is this person's experience, and I'm fully aware it might not be true for everyone. So you might be listening to this and thinking, Actually, I don't feel good about my body at all. You know, I think sometimes as well when people are in the midst of an need disorder, body image can be at its worst. So, you know, I think this is not a one size fits all, as I often say in my podcasts, and um, to just take what's helpful for you personally. So my listener was talking about, although having made huge recovery strides in many areas, that body image was still a real vulnerability with a strong fear of being rejected based on her body. So she reached out to me asking for some thoughts on re-entering the dating scene when being in recovery, especially when this involves weight gain. So in this episode, I'm going to explore five different sort of ways of looking at this, and I'm going to be talking a bit more about some of the perhaps what I would call the more obvious things in terms of ways to improve body image but also delving a bit deeper in terms of looking at your attachment style, your early influences at home with and body image, and the whole thing about external validation, and maybe if you've been prone to being a bit of a people pleaser or receiving great conditional acceptance, even all pre-the eating disorder, and how this has then had an influence on how you feel about yourself, but also how you feel about your body. So my first thought in terms of starting to address this is moving right away from the more obvious kind of thing that we're talking about in terms of body image but going much deeper and thinking about the past and your early attachments. Now I'm going to talk a bit here about attachment theory but if it's something that provokes interest in you and you think you might want to find out more do have a google because it is really really fascinating and it might help you understand yourself a lot more and help you understand how you interact with others in relationships. So you may feel that everything going on here, if you're getting out the dating scene again, you might feel, oh my goodness, it's all about how I look, it's about weight and shape. But ultimately, if you're worrying about these things, it is a self-worth issue. And it has a lot to do with how safe you feel generally in your relationships, and how safe you feel generally to being vulnerable and open. Now, if you've had an eating disorder, controlling weight and food has become a way of trying to feel good enough and gain acceptance or validation from others. But it's likely that even before the .ED issues arose, that you would have had some issues lurking around self-esteem and worse from much earlier. So to really understand this, we need to look to the past and understand our early relationships with our caregivers. And we can explore our earliest attachments and the impact this has had on our adult relationships. And some of the research that I've got from here is from the website verywellmind.com if you want to check that out for more detail, if you want to kind of read about it. So firstly, what is attachment theory? So attachment theory is focused on the relationships and bonds between people, particularly long-term relationships, including those between a parent and child and between romantic partners. An attachment theory was developed by the British psychologist, John Balby, and he He describes attachment as a lasting psychological connectedness between human beings. And Balby was interested in understanding the separation anxiety and distress that children experience when separated from their primary caregivers. Now, some of the earliest behavioral theorists suggested that attachment was simply a learned behavior. These theories proposed that attachment was merely the result of the feeding relationship between the child and the caregiver. Because the caregiver feeds the child and provides nourishment, the child becomes attached. But what Balbi observed is that even feedings did not diminish the anxiety experienced by children when they were separated from their primary caregivers. And instead, he found that attachment was characterized by clear behavioral and motivational patterns. So when children are frightened, they will seek proximity from their primary caregiver in order to receive both comfort and care. So attachment is an emotional bond with another person. And Balby believed that the earliest bonds formed by children with their caregivers have a tremendous impact that continues throughout life. He suggested that attachment also serves to keep the infant close to the mother, thus improving the child's chance of survival. And Balby viewed attachment as a product of evolutionary processes. So while the behavioural theories of attachment suggested that attachment was a learned process, Balby and others proposed that children are born with an innate drive to form attachments with caregivers. And throughout history, children who maintain proximity to an attachment figure are more likely to receive comfort and protection, and they're more for, therefore more likely to survive to adulthood through the process of natural selection, a motivational system designed to regulate attachment emerged. So what determines successful attachment? So Balby and others demonstrated that nurturance and responsiveness were the primary determinants of attachments. So the central theme of attachment theory is that primary caregivers who are available and responsive to an infant's needs allow the child to develop a sense of security. The infant knows that the caregiver is dependable, which creates a secure base for the child then to explore the world. In her 1970s research, psychologist Mary Ainsworth expanded greatly upon Balby's original work her groundbreaking strange situation study revealed the profound effects of attachment on behavior. And in the study researchers observed children between the ages of 12 and 18 months as they responded to a situation in which they were briefly left alone and then reunited with their mothers. And based on the responses the researchers observed was described three major styles of attachment, these being secure attachment, ambivalent insecure attachment, and avoidant insecure attachment. And later researchers, Main and Solomon, added a fourth attachment style called disorganized insecure attachment based on their own research. So I'm going to talk a bit more about the different types of attachment style. And you can see from this patch which ones you may relate to. So Patterns of attachment emerge. There are four main types. So the first one is a secure attachment. So if a child has a secure attachment, children feel they can depend on their caregivers. So they show distress when they're separated from their caregivers and they will show joy when reunited. And although the child may be upset, they feel assured that the caregiver will return. And when frightened, securely attached children are comfortable seeking reassurance from caregivers. The next one is ambivalent attachment. So these children become very distressed when a parent leaves. Ambivalent attachment style is considered uncommon, affecting an estimated 7 to 15 percent of U.S. children. As a result of poor parental availability, these children cannot depend on their primary caregiver to be there when they need them. The next one is avoidant attachment. Children with an avoidant attachment tend to avoid parents or caregivers, showing no preference between a caregiver and a complete stranger. And this attachment style might be a result of abusive or neglectful caregivers. Children who are punished for relying on a caregiver will learn to avoid seeking help in the future. And the last one is disorganised attachment. And these children display a confusing mix of behaviour, seeming disorientated, dazed or confused, and they may avoid or resist the parent. And lack of a clear attachment pattern is likely linked to inconsistent caregiver behaviour. In such cases, parents may serve as both a source of comfort and fear, leading to disorganised behaviour. I want to say with all of this... Parents often doing the best they can. And this isn't a parent bashing exercise. You know, if a parent has not formed a secure attachment with their child, it's probably because they are struggling with their own mental health. They have got a lot of stresses going on. There's a lot of overwhelm going on. Maybe there's a lot of things happening within the family. So I think it's really important to bear that in mind. And if a parent is forming an insecure attachment with their child as well, they have probably not experienced the most secure attachment style themselves. So as I said on previous podcasts, we can often only do what we have learned ourselves unless we've had some support and help to do something differently. And if we haven't had that, we will just unconsciously repeat old patterns. So the fascinating thing all of that stuff about attachment, bring it forward into the present and thinking about romantic relationships. So research suggests that failure to form secure attachments early in life can have a negative impact on behavior in later childhood and throughout life. So while attachment styles displayed in adulthood are not necessarily the same as those seen in infancy, early attachments can have a serious impact on later relationships. And those who are securely attached in childhood tend to have good self-esteem, strong romantic relationships and the ability to self-disclose to others. Children who are securely attached as infants tend to grow stronger self-esteem as they grow up and better self-reliance as well. These children also tend to be more independent, perform better in school, have successful social relationships and experience less depression and anxiety. So if you've had a secure attachment, you really have been given a gift there, which is going to make so many of your relationships so much easier. So something just to really think about is just to think about your early life and your attachment to your caregivers, you know, do you have any insight into what kind of attachment style you have? You know, do you think you have more of a secure attachment? Have you got more of an anxious attachment style where you often feel, you know, really sort of worried that people are going to leave you, You're probably really nervous when you get into relationships, it causes a lot of anxiety. Have you got more of an avoidant attachment style where you feel like, you don't need other people, where you don't want to depend on others, where you feel that you want to kind of do it all on your own and it's really hard to let people in? Or have you got more of a disorganized attachment style where you can kind of flip between the different ones? What's really interesting as well is to reflect on maybe your relationship with your primary sort of your mother, your primary female figure in your life, if your mother was your main kind of carer, and also the male relationship your predominant male relationship in your life that was your dad or someone else and just to think about how those relationships formed how close were you what was your attachment like and I know reflecting on my own situation I probably had a stronger attachment a more secure attachment towards my mother and I had more of an avoidant attachment towards my dad. And that's definitely played out through my adult relationships. And I think the really important thing to say here as well is that you can still feel loved by your parents or caregivers, even if you have insecure attachments it doesn't mean necessarily that people are bad parents you know people are often doing the best they can so just really want to kind of emphasize that this is not a parent bashing exercise it's just to give you more insight and understanding so just have a think really if you are struggling in your romantic relationships and you fear being close to people or makes you very anxious when you're close to people There are probably some clues from your early life, and it might be worth exploring that, thinking about that, and just, you know, gaining some more insight from that. Okay, second thought to think about when we are looking at romantic relationships after having an eating disorder is just to acknowledge how much you are impacted by diet culture. Now, I think we're all impacted by diet culture, aren't we, to a certain extent, we live in, if you're living in the Western world, you know, the diet culture, it values losing weight, it's slim body shape, body aesthetics, over well-being and health. Weight loss is praised, regardless of the road taken to achieve this. And never mind if you end up getting an eating disorder. And it's so ingrained, I think, in our Western culture that we don't tend to question it. It's a given that Disney princesses are thin, people in the media tend to be in smaller bodies, and that diet plans are sold prolifically by multinational companies. You know, we don't even really question that. Although I think, helpfully in the last few years, it has been questioned more, but generally it has not been questioned a great deal. Now, questioning diet culture, it can feel an extraordinarily momentous task to even begin to do that. Because of you will have absorbed these messages for days and days and days from the day you were born." On media, in films, on television, certain body types are represented far more than others. There's a pressure for women to be slim, small, lean and take up as little space as possible. whilst for men, a muscular physique is the kind of ideal. So there's a powerful subconscious message that losing weight is good with diets and wellness plans being such a normal part of life so I think anyway going in the culture that we live in and then navigating romantic relationships we do live in this culture which is extremely 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 triggering but I guess what's really interesting is if you've had an eating disorder you are probably experiencing these cultural messages in an amplified way. And that is not true. Not everybody in the culture experiences these messages in quite the same way. So if you feel that you have a particularly thin skin to these messages, if you feel that you have this really strong over-evaluation of yourself in relation to your body shape and your weight, then it might, again, be helpful to delve deeper. And this is about thinking, again, back to your family of origin, thinking about you know what's your early memories of food and eating at home you know who's in the family was anyone dieting what was their relationship to exercise was there a lot of kind of focus on weight or phobia or weight stigma you know what were the conversations like around food because of whatever environment you grew up in would have very much become your normal and you probably are not even questioning it also what's helpful to think is how were foods labelled in the family? Was it about good and bad foods, healthy, unhealthy? Were any foods forbidden? Were you allowed to sort of help yourself to foods? Was there any kind of shame about eating certain foods? Was there a lot of talk again about diets and things like that? What were family meal times like? Were they relaxed, happy, joyful occasions? Were they quite stressful? Did you have to clear your plate? you know, because of the starving children in Africa or whatever you may have been told? Were you allowed to waste food? You know, if you've made too much, if you weren't hungry? And when you look back, did you ever turn to food to soothe your emotions? And also, what kind of special meals and family traditions did you have around food? So it's quite helpful just to think back to your early life. And possibly, if you have this over-evaluation of your self-worth today, in relation to your weight and shape, how you look, it may have some roots in your early life. And again, this isn't about blaming because I think, again, people are doing the best they can at the time. You know, often, you know, we're brought up with parents who have been absolutely indoctrinated by diet culture, not even aware of it, such a normal thing. And sadly, they've just kind of passed it on. But it's really helpful just to really look back and try to understand, like, why for me has weight and shape become such a big issue and if you feel like actually the answer doesn't lay at home, lie at home, it might also be something to do with your friends, something that happened at school, maybe something to do with bullying or an earlier relationship or something that may have triggered you. So again, really, really helpful to reflect, to question that, to start to take a step back and be a bit more of an observer of your earlier life. Okay, So the next thought about how to navigate all of this is thinking a bit more about this whole thing about external validation that we can often seek and this conditional acceptance from other people. So when you've had an eating disorder, underneath the eating disorder symptoms, your self-esteem is often quite shaky. You might not feel good enough. You might feel that you're flawed and you may not treat yourself with the respect you deserve. So you might experience, I'm not good enough kind of thoughts, such as I'm boring, I'm not intelligent, I'm unattractive, I'm too this or too that, I'm not as good as this person. You'll probably be good at noticing your perceived flaws and ignoring any positive qualities. And this inner feeling of unworthiness can permeate every area of your life through your relationships, through work progress, through your social engagements. And it's like having a millstone around your neck as you carry this heavy psychological baggage into every situation. So it's trying to remember that you were actually born feeling enough. You know, as a baby coming into the world, you didn't care. You would have been very happy to express your needs for food and, you know, to cry if you needed something. You wouldn't have been hiding anything. But then you grew up. And of course, we, you know, we grow up when social beings and social environment and life begins to shape how we develop and how we form our beliefs. And those early experiences with caregivers, school, friends will influence how you feel about yourself. And you may have learned early on that love can be quite conditional. So then you mold yourself to fit the world. So, When you start to rely a lot on external validation, it's almost like you don't really have that strong sense of self, of who you are, your identity, your strengths, your weaknesses. You constantly look outside of yourself to know if you are good enough. And this is often being triggered maybe by external feedback. And it could have been negative, like criticism, bullying, unhelpful comparisons, or it may have been sort of positive feedback, which... Was said with great intentions, but over time began to really define you. So you felt you couldn't step away from it. So, one thing just to realize is just to reflect on how much can I trust myself in making an evaluation about myself in terms of making my decisions? How much do I look to others or the outside world to validate if I'm okay? Now, such a big part of healing from an eating disorder is beginning to get in your own lane, to begin to trust more of your own voice and to care less about what others think of you. And it's trying to remember as well, you know, if someone is valuing you based on your body being a certain weight or shape as the number one evaluator of your worth, then as well, it's really important to start thinking, you know, Is that really the kind of person I want to be involved with? Because it's so seductive, isn't it, to chase the likes, the validating comments from friends about physical appearance, people praising aspects of how we look. And although this can ultimately feel sort of fleetingly gratifying and self-esteem boosting, It doesn't really fill our inner need to be seen, loved and recognized and understood for who we genuinely are. So a good question to think about is deep down, you know, do you really want to be praised and put on a pedestal for how you look or for the perfected view that you project into the world? And if you're attracting someone who is only liking you because of these things, and who's drawn to you more just by these superficial aspects, they're probably likely to be someone who has a predisposition maybe towards narcissistic traits. They may possibly be more controlling. They're going to be probably more superficial and less authentic. Or would you rather be truly seen for who you are, warts and all? Now, deep down as human beings, really, truly, we absolutely long to be seen for who we are but we're also terrified of this because it can feel excruciatingly vulnerable to be real. And particularly if our experience of relationships has not been one where we have been able to trust and feel safe to be ourselves. So having a superficial connection where we are validated for the external rather than the internal, it can't really ever fully satisfy us or make us feel peaceful. It's going to feel like a very fragile connection. It's going to feel like very conditional acceptance that it could almost break at any point so in truth we want to be thinking about for going into a romantic relationship meeting with another who is real genuine authentic and accepting of us for who we are and us accepting of them as well for who they are too and actually that real authentic connection is going to bring a lot more happiness and fulfillment than a kind of more superficial admiration for each other okay next thought number four self-love first is the best love so we always kind of hear about this a lot but have to mention it so rather than focusing solely on finding a partner or a love interest to boost your worth and make you feel complete Self-love does need to come first. I don't believe you've got to be completely fully sorted before you go into romantic love. I don't think that's necessary, but I think you need to be kind of on a track of knowing who you are and beginning to get to know yourself. Now, after an eating disorder, you might not know who you are. You're likely going to need to rebuild your identity and to get to know your likes and dislikes. And you may have relied so much on the eating disorder as the safe and known way to identify yourself. But in recovery, you know, this is no longer true and it can feel scary to navigate this new terrain, but it can also be exciting because actually, as you begin to get to know yourself, you can begin to step into a new place. So maybe hanging out with friends who uplift you, doing a job or study that brings you purpose and joy, engaging in hobbies that stimulate and energize you. Maybe developing a spiritual practice if this is your thing. But it's understanding what rejuvenates you or what drains you. And as you begin to step into the zone of being the person you want to be, being you, you're going to then be able to start to attract someone who is like you and shares your passions and interests. Because when you're really fulfilling yourself... You're going to be like radiating lots of joy and happiness and great things. And you're going to be like a magnet to attract the right kind of person. And this isn't based then on an attraction based on purely on superficial external validation. It's probably going to be about a meeting of minds, interests, and hopefully that chemistry too. So self-love first. And the next one is boosting body confidence. My fifth thought. So the boosting body confidence, I think, is more the kind of surface level addressing of this issue. I really think that sometimes you need to look at those attachment things. You need to look at your early relationship with food and weight and body image. You need to look at the kind of external validation and where that's rooted. All those things need to come first. But then of course as well, the things that you can do if you're navigating weight gain or changing your body that are going to help improve body image and help you as you go into romantic relationships. So some of my favorite tips around boosting body image include standing tall, smiling, wearing clothes you love and that reflect who you are. So Attractiveness isn't all about being thin or being all about a certain body size. Attractiveness is so much more about someone's energy, confidence they bring into a room. It's about kind of what they wear to express themselves. It's about, yeah, standing tall, smiling about that lovely energy. And actually, you can have that at any point. You don't have to wait on that to look a certain way in your body that kind of body confidence, that body acceptance. You can access that even in little glimmers at any point. Second thing as well is don't compare. You know, comparison is the thief of joy and all that stuff. You know, if you've got a bad comparing habit, really try and get off social media, stay away from your triggers and really try not to compare yourself with your friends and colleagues as well. Not a good way to boost your self-worth. As well, move away from those unhelpful, body image triggers, such as weighing yourself regularly, constant body checking, all those things do not bring good self-esteem. And then on a more positive note, I guess as well, it's about focusing on what your body can do, focusing on vitality, health, strength, and movement, having gratitude and appreciation of your body. All of these things are going to help because actually, if you are really celebrating what your body can do, if you're not just focusing on aesthetics, you're going to be able to appreciate your body much more, and you can be able to kind of bring that into your romantic relationship as well. Because if you've got energy, you're going to be able to do stuff together. And if you're kind of mentally kind of able to kind of concentrate, you know, you're going to, be able to enjoy each other's company so much more than if you're kind of cold and starved and anxious and feeling very neurotic. And the final thing as well is just think about your values, what's really important to you, you know, when you're 19, looking back on your life, maintaining a certain weight, maintaining a certain body size is not going to be one of your top priorities, you're going to be thinking about relationships, experiences, adventures, study, work, spirituality, all the other things that are so important. And, you know, maybe looks and your body might be a segment of the pie, but actually, in the bigger picture of things there're going to be so many other things that are more important and actually when we go into romantic relationships as well aesthetics it may count for a small part it may count initially for an attraction but actually we don't choose our friends or our romantic partners purely on just how they look it's so much more than that you know we want an emotional connection we want someone who wants to adventurous things we want someone who we can talk to we want someone who can be our friend. And it's holding all these things in mind and realizing that actually how we look, being a certain weight, actually, that's really not so important. So I hope this episode has given you some food for thought and that you can gain some confidence in this for thinking about how you might approach romantic relationships how you might root out some of those things from the past that might be holding you back and how you can work on some things in the present to help yourself feel better and more confident in your body. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And For further support with your relationship with food, do visit theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, I'd be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.